0: I may repeat myself, I realise. I didn't know Hermione was going to uh, read anything I'd written before, and clearly I can only say one thing. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) It's very good of you to give up your early evening on this reverberative and often fraught date. Thank you. You'll know the ugly phrase, get a life. All of us here, I suspect, are interested in finding ways of doing just that. We are interested as to how to get a life onto the page. A confession of sorts must follow. I am not sure that this is the lecture as advertised. Were I a professional academic, that would be inexcusable. I can offer no excuse save that words are living things and these are the ones that grew up from the depths as I read, took notes, and considered over the last three months what you might enjoy to hear tonight. The title I offered you, to do with memory and fiction and in memoir, my own memory refashioned. All, all I can say is that that constitutes some kind of lesson in itself. Memory is unreliable. Truth is multiform. And I am Sorry. Thank you for inviting me to speak to you this evening. I'm honoured to have been asked to contribute to this Weinreber series of lectures. The name is a happy one to me for two reasons, one directly, as it were, autobiographical. A Weinreber in German is a grapevine. Much of what biographical writing at its best can be is well illustrated by the idea of a vine, connective, strong raising itself incrementally by small, powerful reaches that enable a structure to grow, to bear, and to shelter fruit that may nourish and sweeten life, and whose product, like wine, may, with the addition of time, even alter a mental state. The best biography, and let me include autobiography in that term, you may tell me afterwards if that's correct, takes with it the mind of the reader and gives it some sense of an experience outside and beyond its own, a sober intoxication. The other reason I'm pleased about Vine River is personal. At first I approached this evening with a view to keeping out the personal, but I knew that you, as keen readers of the autobiographical form, might find that even more telling than if I'd chosen to bang on about myself exclusively. My father had a book dealer friend named Ben Weinreb, who gave me in the early 1960s my first blank book in which to write a book of my own. It was a printer's dummy for a book called London 2000, which was an unimaginably distant date then. <laughs> I filled its many empty white pages with drawings of the little girl I wanted to be leading the life I wasn't leading. The paper was too shiny for me to feel words wouldn't slip off it, so I hid my stories in a 19th-century seaman's ledger found in a junk shop by my mother. Throughout this talk, I hope to illustrate the value of apparent vine-like wandering and the power of the small tendril-like detail that in biography and in fiction are what hold the reader convinced of what he is reading. Without these, the work is lifeless. When we are concentrating stubbornly, As biographer or as writer of fiction, the material can go sterile, even dead, on us. One has to be, like the vine, supple, patient, trusting the mind's roots to draw from the tilth of memory and research what is needed, and on imagination's countless shadow-shifting leaves to imbibe from the air what will make the work breathe for the reader." I have come to speak to, and I hope hear from, you all the way from Edinburgh, capital of the divided self, birthplace of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's maker, Robert Louis Stevenson, the city that gave us the creator of Sherlock Holmes, deducer of human traits from clues, ticks and spur, an all-round stock character whose violin and syringe seem to me now to be worn for effect in the absence of a beating heart. But how enjoyed the stories as a child, and I'm sure many of you did. Speaking of unconvincing dressing up, daily I see in the silvery stone square where I live between the police station and an infant school the braw lads of the Lothian and Borders Police setting out from their neatly parked vehicles, attired as near do wells, clocking on for another day's plain clothes mingling with the rages, the Blade Bearers, the Skagheads who fill Irvin Welsh's Train Spotting, a novel set up the road in the port of Leith. I've got a tip for those plain-clothes lads. Don't iron your hoodie. <laughs> and a hold-all seldom emphasises villainy. This police station, or police hoose as it's called properly, features in many of the novels of Ian Rankin. It's a snot-grey building, misshapen, grudging, overtly leaky, as though it were a metaphor for something about policing today. But even it, in that written-over city, has another life on the page. It sheds that written spell, the glamour. This is the city where Deacon Brodie, minister of the Kirk by day and highway robber by night, robbed his rich parishioners for the sake of his poor ones. As his descendant, Miss Jean Brodie says, he died on a gibbet of his own devising. Though, of course, Miss Jean Brodie never lived, and yet she does, with vehemence, live on in the mind of all readers who have met her. By the end of the day in Edinburgh, words are all over your shoes when you've walked the streets like leaves in autumn. Strangers talk to one another, though not as much as in Glasgow, from where the ancient mariner might have come, and where the ironic, melodramatic, obscene sublime in the historic present is just one rhetorical mode, As when, made to queue for too long for a morning roll at Gregg's, a well sat up bloke might ruefully say, See me! I'm fair mortal with the fan-fucking-tastic olfactory anticipation, darling. (laughs) A morning roll is not an embrace. It's a small white bun baked in a batch, so you have to tear it from its fellows. Customarily, it's filled with bacon. In Edinburgh... You may leave the house in the dark at 9.30 in the morning, a touch disheartened, and return transported, the word is literal, by the confidences offered you in the shop, by Mr. Shamoon from Kashmir, who prefers Chinese food to curry, and is organizing a surprise 40th for his best friend, whom you don't know. Don't tell him now, and I should have some tales for you tomorrow, we've ordered in a piper. These are the stories of a 1001 Caledonian mornings. And remember, nothing is ever wasted. To write life, in fiction or in biography, you must listen, read, attend, collect, remember. These scraps will later come in to whatever you are making. On the way home, you, okay, I, may pass Steve the terrier who takes himself for a pee in the square, allowing his journalist master to lie in. Tactfully, he seems to go no further in his ablutions. You may pass that most biographically and novelistically promising of things, a single, sparkling, frozen glove on the iron arrowhead of a railing. And behind the 12-foot drop of gauze curtain, clothing the arch triple window down the close where the wheelie bins rest, is a rocking horse in elevated silhouette. Are its child riders gone? Are they anticipated? why not write the story to fill that empty saddle and the tall room behind it? We have no wealth but life, so much is sure. Those of us who are trying to write the captions to our breath so that we animate and transmit lives either invented or actual to others in words are all trying to convey this thing that would sooner flee than stay, life in time. As humans, we are little or nothing, if we are our mere selfish selves. To attend for a time to the life of another by writing it or by reading it in the form of biography or of fiction is to take a step of understanding as to what it is to be other than ourselves, if not more than ourselves. For many, this takes the form of love, which is in great part to put another before oneself. I hardly need emphasise in such a roomful as this one how necessary such a thing is at a time when we are too often manipulated by fear into hatred and by caricature into antipathy, ignorance offering root grip to prejudice, and attention and concentration being states that cannot be come to but by their exercise. That isn't a utilitarian argument. It's a bond of civilization practised. What can and do the best works of fiction and of biography share when it comes to habit, language, and technique. Well, let's put the rubbish out first. The hidden persuaders are convinced that we're all biographers now. A frisky old woman in refreshing pastel shades smiles out fully possessed of her faculties from a newspaper ad with lightsome, turquoise, cursive script declaring, I still get to put on my dancing shoes. Get to is a usage unusual in the over-70s. The body copy continues. When a new resident moves into a booper <coughs> care home, with the help of family and friends, we fill out a map of life. We know what they're driving at. You may be old, but while you're sentient, you still imagine yourself to be unique with all the attendant nuisance that provides. Don't go getting any ideas. Group activities are emphasized in the online prospectus. Hairdressing Thursday afternoons art appreciation offered. That mappa vitae is something all of us who have been born unnecessarily colouring in, whether or not with the assistance of British United Providence. In an age sick for certainties and amid failing or discredited means of interpreting the invisible world, we're thrown back onto ourselves. We needn't see only with our own eyes, though, which can conduce to short sight, even impaired vision. Biography and fiction, like love, offer us the chance to make better our own lives by entering the ways of seeing, of feeling, and of thinking that belong to those other than ourselves. So our reading enters and feeds the memory and the imagination, helping to see off idle prejudice and preconceived ideas. Fiction is in some circles suspect in a world of increasingly topped-up news, a rolling hyper-reality that has a slavering for yet more of the thin-sliced meat of others' experience, spiced up and simplified for the general palate. The present tense insists upon itself, and, reacting, our emotions grow keratinous, our moral sense dimmed by the quotidian available pornographies from advertising to the sort of hectic writing of which this sentence is an example." We lose our recognition of the authentic. We grow to want things chopped up, beefed up, and with relish. We lose the recognition that breeds a sense of proportion, of attachment, of the reality of persons who are not ourselves. We must have that in order not unreflectively to harm those we do not immediately understand. Here are two pieces of biography for you to taste from centuries apart, each differently doing no service at all to their subject. The first runs, X was born in this city of wealthy parentage extracted out of Wales, one of excellent wit, large travel, and choice experience. After many vicissitudes in his youth, his reduced age was honoured with the Doctorship of Divinity and Deanery of St Paul's. Should I endeavour to give his exact character, I, who willingly would not do any wrong, should do a fourfold injury. One, to his worthy memory whose merit my pen is unable to express. Two, to myself, undertaking what I am not sufficient to perform. Three, to the reader, first in raising, then in frustrating his expectation. Four, to my deservedly honoured master, Isaac Walton, by whom his life is so learnedly written. It is enough for me to observe that he died, March 31st AD, 1631, and lieth buried in St. Paul's, under an ingenious and choice ornament, neither so costly as to occasion envy, nor so common as to cause contempt. (laughs) It's boring, isn't it? (laughs) Tone and structure that accommodates the demands of that tone need to be established at once in the first sentence of a biography that will breathe. Only thus is the essential trust between reader and writer established. As with a novel, so with biography... A presiding undeclared metaphor will contribute tension, depth, and wholeness. All of these are absent here. Rather, this lamentably jocose, self-regardingly self-deprecating and sweatingly unctuous offering has something of the social unease and non-specificness of an inept restaurant review. There are no load-bearing words. Its subject, who knew? Yes. Yes. It's an account of the life of the tormented, inspired lover and divine, sublime poet and master of sacred prose, the wrestler with thought and form and God, John Donne. Here is an extract from a very recent biography positioned near the top of the literary market. As when literary becomes before the word fiction, be alert. You may be being slipped a generic version of the entirely specific drug felt truth that you want. X.Y. was 31 in 1993, and to call her glamorous and cosmopolitan surpasses understatement. J.M. Kaplan, her maternal grandfather, had once owned Welch's Grape Juice and was a multimillionaire. Her mother was a painter, her father a Uruguayan and an internationally acclaimed sculptor. Her brothers A and B, the latter dying, dying tragically early, age 36, also became painters. Her sister, C, is a costume designer. X grew up in a townhouse of bohemian aspect in West 11th Street, Greenwich Village, and summers were spent in East Hampton. She was accepted by Oxford to read PPE in 1984 at Wadham. To be a fresher at 22 was not that unusual, but if you looked like X, olive-skinned, fine-boned, with piercing dark eyes and hair so fully black and came with a spellbindingly cosmopolitan heritage, an Ivy League degree and a wardrobe that bespoke chic maturity, the response by post-sixth form female peers was predictable. Envy. (laughs) She did not make too many close friends at Oxford, at least not female ones, but within a year she had become a magnet for men, who expected their intellectual reputation to guarantee other attractions. It's vulgar and illiterate, but that's just a start. Would you trust him to sell you an egg cup, let alone a lived human life? Can't he hear what he's doing? I'm afraid it is a man. The sexism and the money drooling could, to be quite fair, have come from a woman writer. I can think of two biographers up to this sort of thing very remuneratively, and that's quite without entering Kitty Kelly or J. Randy Tarabarelli country. What a woman is unlikely to have written is that talkative wardrobe with its chic maturity which woman readers might well understand as garments to conceal past it upper arms. And the present Mrs. Martin Amis, about whom this tosh purports to be, is the last person to require such tailoring. I'd like to ask a few small verbal housekeeping questions of the man who penned this. Penned is something only dud writers admit to doing, and they boast it. Calligrapher's pen, shepherd's pen, a pen is a female swan. When is the word latter ever not idle? When is a death at 36 not tragic? Do you see how by listing that death like a sumptuary assertion you're offending decorum? Why do you think that the present participle dying makes the sentence swingier when in fact it loosens and smirches both grammar and sad fact? Are you attempting to sell Miss Fonseca on the open market? Have you no ear at all for bathos? Can you surpass understatement? Be very afraid of English negatives. They are seldom up to much overt work at all, but they are tunnelling away underneath to set a trap for writers of pretension. Bohemian aspect, soulful hair. I think they're band names rejected by the incredible string band. (laughs) And last of all, what are those other attractions to be guaranteed by intellectual reputation? Other attractions is a phrase whose fairground tone introduces unwanted suggestions of coconut shy and helter-skelter into the mess. Overwriting achieves the opposite of what its practitioner wants to achieve. Here we have heard something that combines the laziness of in-flight journalism with the transparent aspirational breathlessness that internal contradiction is intentional, of the mid-range estate agent trying to shift a house with a moody septic tank. <laughs> At the level of the word, every single word matters. Should a writer be serious about stretching strong the membrane of their story, whether it be biography or fiction? A word whose suggestions not or ladder a sentence an unintended tear in the fabric caused by one small, extruding particle will interrupt the weaving complicity there must be between reader and writer in order to achieve the work that they are doing together that may be remade fresh by each new reader. If you turn to the first sentence of Penelope Fitzgerald's The Blue Flower, you will find a use of the definite article that at once tells you that you may trust the author, that you are in Germany, and that wash day in the Germany of the time, we gather at once we are in the moderately far past, was an infrequent occurrence. Jacob Dietmahler was not such a fool that he could not see that they had arrived at his friend's home on the wash day. This technical miracle is accomplished with the generosity that only an artist who understands the perpetually moving process between human minds can extend, a process that, once established, can be elastic in excelsis An artist such as this can call spirits from the vasty deep. When Owen Glendower boasts in Henry IV Part I that he can do this, Hotspur snipes back, but will they come when you do call for them? For the good biographer, they will. And it's a kind of magic or a defiance of death. In light of which, or in the shadow of which, let me read you the beginning of Henry Green's autobiography, Pack My Bag. He hadn't wanted ever to write such a thing. Then came the certainty of the Second World War. I was born a mouth breather with a silver spoon in 1905, the year after one war and nine before another, too late for both but not too late for the war which seems to be coming upon us now, and that is a reason to put down what comes to mind before one is killed, and surely it would be asking much to pretend one had a chance to live. That is my excuse, that we who may not have time to write anything else must do what we now can. If we have no time to chew another book over, we must turn to what comes first to mind, and that must be how one changed from boy to man how one lived, things and people, and one's attitude. All of these otherwise would be used in novels. Material is better in that form, or in any other that is not directly personal. But I feel we no longer have the time. I'm afraid I seem to be temperamentally inclined to have read disproportionately many more biographies of writers and painters and so on than I might have had were I a major general, which is not to deprecate military histories. Like many physically timid people, I do find a mystery and beauty in action, and I am drawn to lives of those who have managed a good deal of it, from Apsley Cherry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World to Harriet Wilson's Less Vertical Memoirs. I think the reason for this is not at all that I want to read about people who resemble myself, but I am transported from myself when a biographer can pull off the revelation of the interior world that has resulted in creation. It's hard to do. One only has to think of the blank that films draw when trying to evoke the writer's life. There's always some pen, or typewriter to be seen, and a good deal of sighing and tearing up. (laughs) Thought is hard stuff to evince. With artists' biopics, there is an embarrassing daubing at some ready-painted canvas. Some writers can enter the mind of another as sleekly as a cat and curl up there. The image isn't mine. It's that of Ivy Compton Burnett, whose only apparently uneventful life Hilary Sperling dared approach, uncovering the pity and terror under the excellently furnished tea table, removing the tablecloth with dazzling panache, apparently without so much as rattling the spoons. The biographer may come to know more, after all, about their subject than that subject ever knew about their own life. It is to me, and I'm sure to many other readers, a great almost musical pleasure when the manner of a biography, without strain, reflects something of the rhythm and grace notes and refrains of its matter. Ideally, this should be achieved in the merest review or obituary. It's an ideal and consonantly rare. It takes a poet's ear. I'm often surprised when a biography of a writer is written by someone who has apparently been unaffected by that writer's writing. And it goes for all other callings too. Every discipline, from thatching to politics, has its own vocabulary and registers. Since we have that resource in our language, let us deploy it. Every condign choice of word embeds more deeply what is read into the consciousness and experience of the reader. Biography is at this point in what is revoltingly called the culture, a phrase that has escaped its petri dish and grown cheesy, inescapable, and slippery, privileged over fiction because it is real, and we are held to be, and often are, hungry for the real. I can't resist a digression here. It's about that use of culture. Here's the novelist Howard Jacobson. Why we want to give students a broader understanding of culture When half of them are already dying of the stuff, I cannot imagine. As for current culture, only slaves assume its value. One of the supreme justifications for the study of literature is that it enables us to know a culture when we see one, and not to think of it as merely the value-free agglomeration of all we do. Out of the study of those alternative modes of thinking and feeling we call literature, evolve the dreamers, naysayers, visionaries, idlers, necessary for our freedom of mind. Far from liberating us from some imagined elitist tyranny, N-A-T-E, the National Association of Teachers of English, against whom he is offering this pleasurable rant, and too many of whose members I hope aren't here today. (laughs) Nate's proposals would make cultural consumers of us all enslaved to whatever pap happens to be pumped out to us. Jacobson, who is a bonny hater as well as an enjoyably wrathful and appetitive novelist with educated obsessions, goes on to offer the dictionary definition of Nates. It's buttocks, actually. (laughs) How can they not have thought of that when they chanced upon their acronym? (laughs) It's like the meat substitute called Quorn. How awkward for conviction vegetarians to have to ingest something named after a rather smart hunt words do matter. About hierarchies of reality. Of course, really, much that is held to be real isn't so, and quite a lot that is dismissed as unreal is not only real, but essential to and for. There is a difference. Life. Bear with me, as they say in my, at present, panda-obsessed home country. And I know pandas aren't bears. In my experience... The man who says, my wife reads fiction, is quite likely to go on to say, and when I read, I tend to go for biography. Nothing very obliging is being implied here about either women or fiction. He's saying roughly that stories are for girls and facts are for men. I'm never quite sure about facts. Any serious scientist will tell you that a fact is only a fact until it is supplanted by a newer, truer, more factual fact. As a matter of fact, that is also that precision, how the serious artist must address the world and his subject. I use his as an inclusive, possessive pronoun for a tiny tease. If you're offended, I'm only a little bit sorry. You see, it's true to my generation, my temperament, extraction, and character to do this, so I'm offering you a confidence about my private inner self, far more revealing than what toothpaste I like and what was the name of my first dog. A good biographer will operate at that level of absorptive stylistic tact and detail in every respect when considering his or her subject. Truth is the thing, or veracity. Truth in this context is observable fact corroborated by evidence, flowered into truth from the seed of experience under the light of imagination and opening convincingly up into art. Evidence is a difficult thing, During their lives, people may try to burnish their own legend or to topiarize it, never mind the tendency to hide from the biographer or put them off the scent, one with which I have much sympathy. The following story about the great scholar connoisseur of Italian painting, Bernard Berenson, illustrates this. Time Magazine published a piece saying that Berenson had his wristwatch warmed before he put it on in order to avoid the shock of the cold to his delicate system. Later, a close friend of Berenson admitted to the great man's biographer, Merrill Seacrest, that he had made this up when he was irritated by the questions of a boring journalist. <laughs> Later in her researches, Seacrest interviewed the ex-military governor of Florence, who had visited Berenson at his Villa Itati, and who said, one afternoon, a butler arrived carrying a red velvet cushion. On it was a white towel, and on that towel was a warmed watch. We asked about it, and Berenson's secretary explained, we never let him put his watch on because of the shock of the cold against his arm. Just a little thing here. I've heard Meryl Seacrest described in the art historical world in which she practiced her trade by the anagram of her name, which is merely secrets. The unhappy artificial conflict between fiction and biography is catching. In those questionnaires, little biographies themselves, in the Sunday papers or in mags, the subject, wishing rather to convey something absolutely uncontroversial yet apparently original about themselves than to discover, for which read uncover anything, will say that they devour biography. Not death eaters, then, but life eaters. Biography is true. Fiction is made up. I'm hoping to tell you that part of the success of the best biographical writing is an openness to the made up in the pursuit of truth and that this is so in fiction also. By made up, I do not mean the vulgarly speculative or the unfounded. Think of the unacceptability of the trope when a biographer dares write that their subject would have or when speculation solidifies like lamb fat into the meaty grease of implication. I mean the imaginative, deriving from the same attention-paying, not attention-seeking, creative faculty that generates the best fiction. I hope that I may take a look at this with you. I would contend that we are of necessity improvising right the way through our lives, and that the novel or the biography that doesn't convey this, what we might call quickness as opposed to deadness, is not one that breathes. It is not written with life, nor does it write a life, nor, we may be fairly sure, is it written for life, by which I mean some kind of posterity. That there is no ultimate posterity is taken as read by, for example, Julian Barnes in his Nothing to be Frightened of, which addresses the fear of death in life. I am less certain. Of course we are dust, but we fly up as the sparks fly up, and I think eternity is rather too long a view. Speech is time and graspable. Silence is eternity and beyond us. We have to make metaphors by which to live. Were we mindful continually of our actual circumstances and mortality, we might reach at once for quietus. Given this, it seems prudent to think like a pessimist and live like an optimist. Life is only notionally lived according to that map, after all, being prone to unforeseen modifications of terrain, reroutings of great rivers, and the sudden collapses of mountains, while the molehills leap up overnight to loom above us. Lifelong at our side, as the map gradually reveals itself to have been at best misleading, at worst mischievous or even destructive, is the continually self-reinventing companion and crutch of identity, memory. Memory. Memory, the shapeshifter that tells us what we want to hear one minute and reminds us of what we most hate to hear the next. Memory, which we use to corroborate the story we are telling ourselves about ourselves while we live on, but which will insist upon ambushing us with dissident evidence just as we thought we'd pulled free and got away with it. Most of you in this room are beautifully young. You may not have found yet in yourselves the tendency to take shortcuts that prove wearyingly longer than the allotted route, or to ply the same path again and again, imagining it different because the scenery is not the same. I'm not being patronising. I'm offering you one of the beauties of, as well as the sadnesses of, living, as far as we can tell, forwards through time. In In Search of Lost Time, Proust has the narrator enter a room without his beloved grandmother being aware that he has done so. Alas, it was this phantom that I saw when, entering the drawing room before my grandmother had been told of my return, I found her there reading. I was in the room, or rather I was not yet in the room since she was not yet aware of my presence, and like a woman whom one surprises at a piece of needlework which she will hurriedly put aside if anyone comes in, she was absorbed in thoughts, which he had never allowed to be seen by me. Of myself, thanks to that privilege which does not last, but which gives one during the brief moment of return the faculty of being suddenly the spectator of one's own absence, there was present only the witness, the observer, in travelling coat and hat, the stranger who does not belong to the house, the photographer who is called to take a photograph of places one will never see again, the process that automatically occurred in my eyes when I caught sight of my grandmother was indeed a photograph. We never see the people who are dear to us save in the animated system the perpetual motion of our incessant love for them, which, before allowing the images that their faces present to reach us, seizes them in its vortex and flings them back upon the idea that we have always had of them makes them adhere to it, coincide with it. How, since into the forehead and the cheeks of my grandmother I had been accustomed to read all the most delicate, the most permanent qualities of her mind, how, since every habitual glance is an act of necromancy, each face that we love a mirror of the past, how could I have failed to overlook what had become dulled and changed in her? I saw sitting beneath the lamp, red-faced, heavy and vulgar, sick, daydreaming, letting her slightly crazed eyes wander over a book, an overburdened old woman whom I did not know. Another shard of autobiography here. I went to one of my several copies of this book, which has to some extent written and certainly consoled and even healed aspects of my life, and my thinking, and from the page that held this passage fell a photograph of someone I did not for a moment recognize. Here's the picture. It's me, of course, and your eyes are giving you the Proustian experience as he recounts it as this moment passes, in reverse, life corresponded almost implausibly to art, inverted. But the implausible is so often what happens. It's the tidying faculty of memory that makes it so unreliable as we try out versions to get us through our work and our days. Perhaps you've read Stuart, A Life Backwards by Alexander Masters. Masters is a mathematician as well as a writer. In this account of its subjects' short, chaotic, homeless, heroin adult and wretched life that ended violently, Masters captures the fatuities of hindsight and the horrible odds against those born into disaster, yet the glory of the meanest life. Hidden in the word disaster, after all, is Aster, a star in Greek, Master's second biography, The Genius in My Basement, attempts to shed light upon a mathematical prodigy of eccentric personal habits. It's worth reading as a confuting of the sort of cliche offered in the passage above about Martin Amos's wife. The basement genius is admired as the at one time best living mathematician in the world. Mathematical genius deserts its possessors painfully soon, as the cliche has it and as G.H. Hardy confirms in his terrifyingly lucid memoir, A Mathematician's Apology. Indeed, Hardy tried to kill himself at the sense of the waned power. The basement genius is an old Etonian from a family with a fortune in, of all things, jewels. Small, mineral, multiform, shining, representative of inconceivable sums, portable like refugee talent from which he sprang constituting in themselves shining brilliance, a perfect lapidary metaphor. The biography isn't successful quite on the mathematical or the human level. In a way, that's tangentially its success. Its half-reluctant subject with his crusades over bus timetables and his uncut hair skips out of the concentrated intelligent beam that is directed upon him, asserting as he evanesces into his own personality. I'm a happy man. Henry James had famously a horror of the biographer. He gives the name Withermore to his fictional biographer in The Real Right Thing, and has him, in the context, revoltingly assert that he seeks the possibility of an intercourse closer than life with his subject, a writer whom he idolizes. As ever with James, or so I feel, he muffles his blow and gives one internal bleeding so deep as his force you will know that one of the great biographies of the last century was that of Henry James by Leon Edel. Larkin dreaded to be biographised and wrote of shit, Jake Bolakowski, my biographer, who says, I'm stuck with this old fart at least a year. Larkin didn't get Jake, but he got something that is only being rebalanced now, and I'm not referring to the whopping new Larkin heavy that Faber and Faber have just published, There was, in the first biography of Larkin, all the soppy, stern stuff, precisely what the poet himself will have, I didn't say would have, dreaded about matters extrinsic to his poetry, stuff that derived mainly from a need to placate pieties that were conscript to fashion, because it's easier to jib at a fat, lonely man's secret fancy for porn than to sit still in a room and allow his exalting song to improve you and feel better that way There was some time for the poor poet in the washing machine of post-mortem prurience. But now he rests and grows in our minds, and not ruined by having been taken to the heart of this only apparently unpoetic country, England. Scotland is many disobliging things, but it's not unpoetic. It isn't enough for a biography, then, to seek merely to defy annihilation, it should and can, at its best, as with fiction, leave the reader with a sense of a trajectory having been experienced, interpreted, reinterpreted by himself and deepened by this passage through two intelligences, illuminating the intelligence, or shall we say spirit, consciousness at any rate, that is being summoned by the work of a creating mind. The collaboration then becomes not a séance, but a communion, or, if that word gives you the religio's heebie-jeebies, an interim animation. Lockhart, the biographer of Sir Walter Scott, takes us into conversation with Sophia, one of the Scott children, of whom it is inquired, Well, Miss Sophia, how did you like your father's The Lady of the Lake? Oh, I have not read it, she answers. Papa says there's nothing so bad for young people as reading bad poetry. <laughs> Modest man, amiable, loving, droll father," all conveyed as though we were eavesdropping in that long-extinguished drawing room. This small talk is only breadcrumbs dropped from a pocket to lead you back to the many-roamed houses of fiction and of biography with the white peacocks tactfully pretending to be white dahlias in the rainy garden. I'll leave you with these words of Sybil Bedford, which will mean incrementally more to you as you return to them, like all words, where none is in anything but the right place. You see, when one's young, one doesn't feel part of it, the human condition. One does things because they're not for good. Everything is a rehearsal to be repeated ad lib, to be put right when the curtain goes up in earnest. One day, you know that the curtain was up all the time. That was the performance.